A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source in Pro Power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Well, it's a huge, huge uh, year here, week, month, the 40th year anniversary of Eddie Trunk in radio, which is next level, man. I mean, like you're talking about Dick Clark, Casey Kasem, Uncle Brucey, <laughs> Howard Stern, and, <laughs> and Eddie Trunk, man. Like, how does it feel for you to know you've been doing this for 40 years? It's surreal, Chris. I mean, when I think about it, I, I can't believe it's been that long. I never dreamed it would be and turn into the career it's turned into. It feels to me like I started yesterday, mm-hmm. but the reality is I started in 83, my first year out of high school. And I don't know exactly what month I started, but I just know it happened in 83. So I'm getting it in under the wire, you know, kind of celebrating in December, but yeah, it's definitely, definitely surreal. And um, like you or anybody that has a drive and a goal, there was no backup plan. You know, so it's like, I'm glad I figured out a way to make this work. Zach Wilde used to always say to me, Father Trunk, he goes, good thing you figured out a way to make this work. Because if not, you'd probably be homeless. And he's right. (laughs) Well, the thing is, though, too, like the way you've made it work, and we can talk about all the different changes and the way that the whole industry has changed in so many ways in 40 years. Just the fact that you have that type of longevity. I don't know if, I'm sure there will be some people, but to have somebody that was, let's say, started in radio, whatever that is in this day and age in 2023, to get to 2063, that's going to be even harder just the way that the industry has changed so much. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a lot of younger people often ask me, how do I get started? How do I do what you did? How do, how, what's the path? What's the advice? And, you know, I'm never discouraging to them, but one of the biggest challenges is when I started, there were no podcasts, there was no internet, there was no YouTube, there was nothing like that. So there was a real sense of like accomplishment if you were able to get in a position where you could broadcast, where you could reach a larger audience. Now, of course, 
you've got a very successful podcast we're doing right now. Many others do as well. Mm-hmm. Anybody can essentially be a broadcaster because they can do a YouTube, they could do whatever. The key is building audience with it. Speaking purely from a radio standpoint, people ask me about getting on the radio. Well, back when I started, the path was you'd go to a small city, you'd probably work overnights. If you were lucky, you'd hone your craft, you'd move to a bigger city, bigger city, and you'd build like that. That's kind of all gone now because what's changed in the last 40 years is, I hate to break this illusion, but a lot of local radio stations, half the time people are listening, it's recorded and that host is in a completely different state. Mm -hmm. A lot of radio stations do not even have live original local programming at night or overnight or even in other day parts. So it's made the opportunities way less and it's become way harder. And I also think that the only way you can really get anywhere now is by doing a talk-based format. I think because of the rise of streaming and everybody having every song in their pocket now, you've got to be doing something a little bit more than saying, that was ACDC, here's Def Leppard. Right. Finding those opportunities are hard, but I think that's the only way to really kind of stand out in today's world a little bit. So it's a challenge. Well, let's talk about how it was in 1983. You mentioned you got out of high school. And did you always decide that you wanted to be on the radio when you were a kid and growing up? No, it wasn't radio. For me, what it was, was I, my, one of my earliest jobs was working in a record store. And I loved telling other people about new music that had come out. And when I was a kid working at this record store, I quickly became known as the guy that if you were into hard rock, you went to see Eddie <laughs> because he would tell you about the, this new band called Def Leppard or this new band called Quiet Riot or this new band called Metallica. So it used to be that like whenever anybody walked in the store that looked like they were a rocker, my manager would be like, go help him because they know I could speak their language. Then I started doing some writing in uh, some local newspapers. And the whole mission for me was how can I share what I love with other people? How can I tell somebody about a great new band that they should know about? Because again, back then it was only print and radio and TV. There wasn't social media, there was nothing. Right. For me, it was just about trying to find ways to accumulate platforms to share music that I loved with other people. So that was working in a record store. I was selling it, doing some early journalism. I was writing about it. Uh, Later working for a record company, I was helping to sign it. But when my hometown in New Jersey has three colleges in it, and one year the director from the college came to the high school and said, hey, we have a small radio station on campus would you be interested in any of the seniors be interested in keeping the signal on over the summer when the students leave and learning about radio? So I, I didn't look at it as like, wow, I want to be on the radio. I looked at it as like, well, there's another way that I can play Billy Squire. Don't say no for people. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) I went up there and I, that was the first time I ever experienced radio when I was in high school. And it definitely took my interest. It was definitely like, even though I was broadcasting to probably three people, literally, I was like, wow, this could be pretty cool if I could get on an outlet that has more reach. And, you know, that's how it started. And then it turned out that the guy who was managing the record store I worked in was a big radio nerd. He was into like top 40 and stuff. 
And he had a pirate radio station in his basement in Staten Island, told me to come over there one night and we turned the station on. We could only turn it on for like an hour at a time because we couldn't get busted by the FCC. And that's where I made my first demo tape. The owners of this radio station called WDHA, which is still on in New Jersey and is still a rock station, but the owners used to come in the record store. And I said to them, hey, you know, we're selling all this heavy music you guys aren't playing. And they're like, well, yeah, like what? And in 83, it was Def Leppard, it was Metallica, it was Quiet Riot. And I said, you should give me a show playing some of this stuff on the weekend. I had no real experience. I'm like, go away, kid. But as the music sold, they figured, well, I was on to something. So they gave me this opportunity to go up there for two, three hours on the weekend, on Friday or Saturdays, and do what many consider to be one of the first ever metal shows. And that's where it all started. It's amazing because I remember that too, like in my high school, but specifically in my college, I went to Red River College in Winnipeg and you could get a shift on the college radio station and being able to play whatever you want and having the records. And then you had to play the ads on the three quarter inch tape, like all of that stuff. It was all manual and literally like, you know, like you mentioned, seven people were listening, but if you had to go to the bathroom, you better put on, you know, something a little bit longer, Stairway to Heaven or whatever, to make sure you can get back in time to switch the song or put on the ad. Like that's an old school way of doing things that you don't even have to think about now. Doing radio back then when I started was a real art form because now you can push autopilot on any console on a radio station and the DJ, if there is a live DJ even, can walk out of the room for half an hour easily. Right. Because it just, it's all in the computer and it all trips. Back then, you're 100% right. I mean, I started out, when I started, there were no CDs. It was vinyl and it was queuing up records and there was an art to it. You had to learn to how, how far to pull the record back so that it was up to speed when the song started. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if that song's three and a half minutes, if you're not there to have the next record ready to go, you got dead air. You got to clean the record. You had to clean the needle. You had to make sure it was ready to go. You got to be on it. And mm -hmm. and that is why stuff like Greengrass and High Tides and Freebird and 2112, because <laughs> if you had to hit the can, you had it. You needed that time. There was no autopilot. There was no option. And I worked through every format. I mean, when I started, it was vinyl. Then there was something called carts, which were like, look like an eight track tape. And a lot of commercials were on that. Then it went to CDs. I remember when we first played a CD, it was a huge deal. Then there were mini discs. Then there was this system called an ENCO, which was a computer touchscreen. And it just evolved from there. And yeah, at times we did even string stuff up on reel-to-reel -reel tape. All right, there are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW, and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos, eh, amigas. See, already learning. Haha, -ha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. 
I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. So when did you start getting some, I, I know you started working very early on for a record company, but when did you start branching out from your college radio station to actually becoming a little bit more uh, notoriety as the rock guy in town? Well, just to be clear, I never went to college. So I only went up there to that radio station for two, three times to, to learn as part of this program, but they shut the program down really quickly because we were just partying in the radio station because the college was the summer, the kids were gone. <laughs> yeah. So that didn't last long at all, but it was enough to pique my interest. And then when I made this demo tape with uh, my friend Ron at the record store, that's when I pushed it out to DHA. And, you know, I was really lucky because most people have to take that path of like running around the country and all of that. I never left my home area. Hmm. I got on my local rock station in New Jersey and then just built it from there. But to answer your question, like right out of the gate, there was a lot of interest in what I was doing because what I was doing was a specialty show. Like it was breaking format. There was nobody playing Jump in the Fire by Metallica. Right, right. There was no outlet. Like before Metal Health broke, there was nobody playing Slick Black Cadillac or the Japanese import version of it. I was on all that stuff. The late great Johnny Z had a flea market record store in New Jersey. I used to go buy my imports from him and by Kerrang from him. And I remember one of the big changes for me where I realized where people were taking notice of what I was doing was that I used to always go with whatever money I saved and buy my stuff from Johnny. And one time I went to the store, his store, and he turned around and he handed me a box of records. And I go, what's all this? I don't want this, John. I said, I don't know who th what this is. And he goes, no, 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 just take it. I'm giving it to you. I'm like, give it to me. He goes, yeah, play it on your show. Hmm. Because when I was playing stuff, people were coming in the next day and asking for it if they liked it. So he, it was like the most primitive version of getting a promo because <laughs> Johnny quickly realized that, okay, even if it cost him 50 bucks for this box of records, the next day, if I played those records, he'd sell $1,000 worth of copies. So that's when it first dawned on me. I'm like, wow, I guess people are kind of paying attention. And remember, this was long before there was streaming. The radio station did not stream. The only way you could hear it is if you were in the radius of the broadcast. Right. So it was, you know, it was like really more of a New Jersey thing seeping into a little bit of Staten Island because we had a little signal coverage there. And then if you were on the west side of Manhattan, you could pick up the signal a little bit as well. That's when I first and then I started hearing from some record companies and like inviting me to shows and stuff. And I'm like. I'm just a kid getting my kicks. I had no idea it was connecting like that. Because you were one of the first guys or maybe the first guy to play a band like Metallica on the radio as a result of that, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a story I've told many, many times, and I'll say it again briefly here for people that never heard it, but really crazy moment happened when I got a knock on my door. I was only a few months into doing this show, 
new to radio. I got a knock on my door from Johnny Z and the radio station was a house on a highway. It was late at night and I pull the curtain at the door and I look and there's Johnny. I'm like, what the hell is the guy from the flea market doing here with a record under his arm? He's like, open up the door. I was like, John, what's up? And he's like, um, Hey man, can I come in? I'm like, well, you know, I'm queuing up records. I'm like kind of frazzled. He's like, I got to talk to you. And he goes on to say, he's got this band that he cannot get anyone to play and nobody understands it. And he needs to tell the band that he got them played on the radio he like mortgaged his house, all this stuff. So I said, well, leave the record. I'll check it out. If I like it, I'll play it. He wasn't having it. He's like, I'm not leaving till you play it. Mm -hmm. I said, well, what is it? And it was the 12-inch import single for Jump in the Fire by Metallica. And I played it. He said to me that night, if I can ever get this band to break, I'm going to hire you to work for my record company that I just started. Mm -hmm. And I listened to it. And honestly, Chris... I didn't know what I was hearing. Right. I was like, I never heard music that intense or that fast. I was, you know, I was listening to Love Gun, you know, and uh, <laughs> lights out. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, there's no, there's no way that band's ever happening. <laughs> like, no way anything's happening with this man. He's crazy. He wrote on the record, thanks for being there, Ed. You were the first or something like that. Gave it back to me. And then um, flash forward a couple of years, he calls me up and he's like, hey, good news and bad news. I go, what? He goes, well, good news is Metallica took off, as you probably know. And I said, yeah, I can see they just moved to Electra and everything. He's like, yeah. He goes, um, bad news is they're leaving me. He goes, but the good news is I now in the settlement have money to hire you. Oh, wow. And that's how I started working for Megaforce. And uh, the Metallica guys know that story. As a matter of fact, when they paid, did a tribute show in Florida to Johnny and Marshall last year, mm -hmm. they brought me down to speak and tell that story on stage, oh, which great. was really cool. And they had me tell it at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction as well. Because they brought you in for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. They bring in a bunch of radio guys that were influential to their success. Yeah. I mean, when they went to the Hall of Fame, they flew me and the like 50 people that they felt were really there for them in the beginning, which was super cool. And same deal when they did that Megaforce tribute. Sadly, from the Megaforce era that myself and Metal Maria are like the only ones that are still really active in the business. And yeah. Johnny and Marsha are now gone. So when it comes to speaking about that era, it kind of falls on us because you were there. We were there and we're still alive, thankfully. So how was it for you uh, working with Megaforce? And, and we know these stories, but people listening might not. So don't feel like any story that you've told before has been heard because it's a different platform for you. What was it like working at Megaforce and what kind of influence did you have there? The important thing is I never stopped doing radio. No matter what I was doing, writing, label, right. later on when I started doing TV, never, ever stopped radio. Radio was the one constant from day one. So even at Megaforce, maybe a bit of a conflict of interest when you look back on it, given that I'm signing and working with bands, but also have a radio show on the weekend where I could play them. Um, but honestly, I never played anything I wouldn't have played if either way anyway. But it was cool. You know, <laughs> when I first got the job, 86, Johnny tells me, gives me an address, tells me where to report for work. Again, this is before GPS and all of that. So it's about an hour away from my house, but it was in New Jersey. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'm going to have an office. And <laughs> 86, I would have been uh, 21, 22. And I get to, I get, I'm following the map and I get the, the directions and I pull up in front of this house 
It's a house in a residential area in Old Bridge, New Jersey. And I'm like, oh, I guess we're going to get a coffee or something before we go to the office. <laughs> he opens the door and I'll never forget it. He was in like a wife beater and sweatpants that were pulled up to like the middle of his stomach. <laughs> yeah. He had a cigarette hanging out of his hand, a couple of mug of coffee in the other hand. And he's like, oh, yeah, come on in, Ed. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And I, I'm looking around. He's like, I go, you running late? I mean, we gonna when are we going to go see the office? He goes, oh, no, this is where we work from. And I was like, <laughs> really? He goes, yeah, come on, let me show you. So we walked through his living room, and he had a garage, and he had converted the garage into an office. Mm -hmm. And in this office was himself and his partner at the time, Tony. It was a very small space. That was his garage. And I was like, well, where am I working? He goes, well, we'll put you in the living room. <laughs> and I swear to you, I sat at his living room sofa with the coffee table in front of me with a phone extension that ran out of that room and his kid in the crib next to me. <laughs> and I didn't even know what I was there to do. And he's like, we're going to make you head of promotion. <laughs> he knew I came from radio. So he figured, oh, I'd know how to talk to radio people. So I was just smiling and dialing like, Hey, Jim in Rochester, did you hear about the new Raven record or whatever it was? <laughs> right. <laughs> From there, it just went, you know, and it was such a small, like Maria was there. She was working like out of a bedroom mm -hmm. and his wife was there running around taking care of the kids. And it was just crazy. And then a year or two later, we evolved into getting an actual office and we moved to a, the next town over and we actually had an office. But and I actually had a big hand of building the staff and the roster. But, you know, it was an amazing experience when I look back on it. And I also remember a moment when Johnny said to me, because he, he notoriously only wore like sweats and a T-shirt. I'm totally cool with that because I'm Mr. Casual, too. But we had become distributed by Atlantic Records. One day I show up and he hands me an American Express card and I go, what's this for? And he goes, I want you to go to Macy's and buy a suit. I go, a suit? I got to come here in a suit he goes no 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 he goes but you're going to start having meetings at atlantic records and he goes i can't go up there looking the way i look so you need to go and you need to look the part <laughs> you're like a 23 year old kid or whatever right <laughs> yeah so i had to go to macy's i bought this suit and then he would call up to atlantic and be like i'm sending my guy up next week to have a conversation with you about whatever and I have to put the stupid suit on and go up there and meet with these heads of Atlantic Records at like 23 years old and go over like, you know, our marketing strategy on like the TT Quick record or something. You know? <laughs> so it's just amazing, amazing memories. And it was a good three and a half, four years. And of course, you know, I was there when King's X was signed. Mm. I brought in Ace. I worked with some bands that didn't make it. I worked with people that had been on the roster already like Anthrax, like Metallica, like Overkill, SOD, all that stuff, Testament. It's an amazing part of my story that I'm, I'm really proud of, and it's still surreal to me that Johnny and Marsha have both left us. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. 
Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Was it your idea to sign Ace Frehley to Megaforce? Did you have to track him down? Because you got to remember 1986 or whenever it was, Ace had pretty much disappeared off the planet. But what was your mindset in bringing him in to Megaforce? It was a big deal with the return of, of Ace Frehley at that point in time. So I had seen him play a couple times in the clubs like Lemoore's and stuff. Uh, he was very much thought of as a massive liability at that time uh. that nobody would take a chance on signing, whether he was drunk, high. Remember, he had just driven his car the wrong way down the highway and all that right. stuff, constantly in trouble, like something nobody wanted to take a chance on. But I was a huge Kiss fan, and Johnny was not into Kiss at all and knew nothing about him. As much as I loved the Raven, TT Quick, Overkill, Anthrax, Testament stuff we were doing, you know, I've always been, been into melodic stuff. So my goal was to bring that element and maybe try to grow the label and get some bands on the radio and cross them over beyond just metal. So that was something I was really passionate about trying to talk to Johnny about doing, and I did do, but I knew Ace was out there, and I knew that the fans were dying to hear from him I thought that he'd be like a slam dunk to really send up a flare that Megaforce is going to do some different stuff Mm. and have a band that could also get some radio and be a little more mass appeal. So we tracked him down through Eddie Kramer, the producer. We took a meeting with Ace, Eddie. Believe it or not, at the time, Bill O'Coin was managing Ace. Oh, wow. And we met at a restaurant in New York City. Me and Johnny went in. First time I had ever met Ace, and it probably would have been 86. I remember Ace ordered a tuna sandwich. I'll never forget it. It's just a weird thing to remember, but I do remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember like not only being like amazed of meeting Ace, even though I stayed professional on the outside, I'm like inside, I'm like, right. as a KISS fan, this is not happening. But I was also like that because Bill Coyne was there. I was like the architect, you know, it was like crazy. Mm-hmm. So we had this discussion and Ace kind of convinced us that he was together and sober and healthy and was ready to go and seemed to be in good spirits. The demos that Eddie made for him were really good. And Johnny, you know, on the ride back into Jersey was like, what do you think? You know, do you want to do this? He goes, you know, this is going to be on you. If this guy wrecks his car or if he doesn't make the record, he goes, this is the first one you're stepping out on. And I go, yeah, I I said, I think we got to do it. So I did it. And there's a great photo. It's in my first book and it's made the rounds a lot of me and Johnny and Marcia sitting in a lawyer's office signing Ace. Hmm. To this day, I'm super close with Ace and we talk almost every couple of days. And it's still surreal to me to think that I had a hand in that. And the record did really well. It fell just shy of gold at the time, which was a huge deal for, for a label like Megaforce. And I remember we released Into the Night as the first single I remember Gene Simmons called the office. He's like, you guys blew it. It should have been rock soldiers. <laughs> <It's happening here. laughs> so kind of, uh, you know, you talk about working for Megaforce for, for a few years. 
I remember, you know, just every time coming into New York City when I started with WWE in 99, I know you and I met probably about 2000 or so, you were already, already kind of the cornerstone of the New York rock radio market at that point in time. What led to that? Because as we know, rock radio is very important throughout the country, but New York City still does not really have a rock station. I mean, you've been able to, to overcome that, but there's no rock station in town really. You know, I just, my radio show, I just, my daily show on Sirius that I just finished minutes ago, this just came up actually because Pantera has announced that they're playing Madison Square Garden, which is a pretty big, wow. pretty big lift for them as great as they are, I think. Yeah. And the reason why I think that is a bit ambitious is because of exactly that. There is not a New York City radio station. There's one rock station and it's classic rock. And I'm lucky that my syndicated show is on that station. So it airs to this day. It's on Friday nights on that station, Q104. Mm. That three hours a week, late night, is the only outlet for heavy music yeah. in New York City. Q104 is the only outlet for rock in New York City, and it's all classic. So for me, a really, really pivotal point in radio was 83 to 94. I'm working at DHA in New Jersey. Was a great station, grew up listening to it, worked there for 10 years, still a great station. But, you know, you, your goal is you want to reach more people because, again, my driver for being on the radio was not to try to become known or popular. I thought I had some great voice. It was about reaching people. So I knew that if I could get into New York City radio, instead of broadcasting to some counties in New Jersey, I could then broadcast to three states mm. because not getting too in the weeds about how radio signals work, but there are market sizes and these stations can have, again, remember there was no streaming at that time. You couldn't listen to any station you want on the internet. Right, right, right. So you, you may have a station that had a 2000 watt signal station has a 50,000 watt signal is reaching three states. New York city to this day is the number one broadcast market because those stations, first the population, but also because of their reach, the signal strength. Hmm. So it was really appealing to me if I could have gotten into New York because suddenly I would have gotten beyond just North Jersey and I could reach New York and Long Island and all these other places. So I, I made a tape of doing my metal show. There was a station, interestingly, Q104, which is the station that syndicates my show to this day. When they signed on the air around 96, 97, I think somewhere around then, maybe earlier, they signed on the air as an all hard rock station in New York. They called themselves New York's Pure Rock and they signed on playing ACDC A to Z. Hmm. And my antennas totally went up. And I'm like, I got to be a part of this. So I, doing my metal show in New Jersey, took a tape sent it within an envelope to New York, to this new station it would have been 95, actually 94. And I said, uh, Hey, I'm in New Jersey doing a metal show on the weekend. Love what you guys doing are doing. Here's a ch air check. Let me know your thoughts. I'd love to be a part of what you're doing. Never expected a response <laughs> because regardless of format, when you're in radio, the goal is to get to New York or LA. They're the biggest broadcast markets, right? And I'm in market 72, even though I'm only 40 miles outside of New York City, because I'm on a smaller station. Program director calls me, says, 
hey, if you want to come in, we'd like to talk to you. Go into New York City. I go up and meet with this program director. His name was Ron Valeri and his assistant program director, Vinnie Marino. And they said, we know who you are. We know what you've been doing in Jersey. We like what you do. And they said, we only have one slot we didn't fill. It's Sunday night, seven to midnight. We could offer you that. That's all we have to offer right now because we're fully staffed. I didn't really put it all together. And I was like, okay. And the guy goes, I'll never forget. He goes to me, it pays union scale. And I go, how much is that? And he goes, $256 for a four or five hour shift. <laughs> and Chris, that was like somebody saying to me, it's paid $10,000. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> because in small market radio, you might make minimum wage. So you could be on the air for five hours and you're making like 60 bucks at that. Time. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that one hour, one shift was paying me maybe what three or four shifts were going to pay me at DHA. Even though I was still working in the record store doing other work, radio didn't become my full-time main moneymaker till much later. But I was like, yeah, this is great. And I had to sign up for after the union and I, I was, you know, suddenly in, but I was not doing my own show. I had to do the format. And because the station was a hard rock station anyway, they weren't going to let me do my own show. So I started doing all these other day parts. And then, then I ended up staying in New York city ever since and moving over to a station called WNEW legendary station. That's where you and I met. Right. And that station was in a lot of transition and upheaval at that time. But they were the ones that put me on and said, yeah, bring your old show back, start doing it. And because I was then doing my own thing and doing something unique again, then I started getting on people's radar because New York City had never seen a metal show like that. And then I'm broadcasting it to the whole tri-state. So when you start becoming like, you know, the rock guy in town, the metal guy in town, you start making friends with a lot of the guys. Who were some of the guys that you started getting to know uh, more than just like, here's a guest on the show to this day, still good friends of yours? Well, he's not a um, musician, but he's a Hall of Fame athlete. My friend, Mike Piazza. Right, of course. Who was in the Baseball Hall of Fame and is now retired, but at the time was playing for the Mets. I grew up and still am a huge Mets fan. I had heard Mike was a big metal guy, but Mike was like unapproachable at that point. I mean, he was major, major star in pro athletes. Yeah. But it turned out that I had heard he was listening to the show and all of that. And our mutual buddy, John Tempesta, was hanging out. You know, John, I'm sure. Of course. Drums for the cult now. Yeah. Dr great drummer. John was hanging out with Mike in New York. And I had, I knew Johnny. So I was like, John, you know this guy? He's like, yeah, hey, we hang out or whatever. I said, I, I heard he's into metal. He's like, yeah, he's really into metal. He goes, heard he listens to my show. He goes, yeah, I think he does a little bit. I go, got to bring him up. So John was like. I'll talk to him about it. And then Johnny called me once. He goes, we're hanging out and getting some drinks. I'm going to bring Mike by to meet you. He wants to meet you. Throw him on the air for a minute. I'm like, awesome. You know, that was the biggest thing you could have in New York as a guy at that level. Right. I remember telling my dad and he's like, you get 10 baseballs and make them sign the balls. I'm like, <laughs> dad, I'm not making him sign anything. I told all my interns. I said, nobody asked him for anything. I want the guy to just come and be comfortable, be one of the guys and hang. Cause I figured he gets that all the time, you know? So sure enough, he did. 
And originally where he was supposed to stay like 10 minutes, he stayed for like four hours. And then we left, he exchanged numbers and, you know, flash forward a couple of years, I was going to his wedding and hanging out <laughs> with him at his house. And to this day, we're great friends. He moved to Italy. So I don't see him as much. You know, that was somebody that I built off of my show. But as, as far as the musicians are concerned, I mean, I remember early on, Blackie Lawless was one of my first interviews. People don't realize Blackie is from New York City. So oh, he wow. went there often and he would come around a lot. I really got to know Dio through that. Ronnie hmm. and I, that's where Ronnie and I really bonded around that time. Because again, he's from New York originally. So he would come back, visit people. And then, of course, like Anthrax and Overkill and those guys, they were local. You know, so I, I knew them even before I was on the radio. We'd see each other at shows. This is a great story that you've told before, but kind of give it to me again, where you had to go buy a headdress for Joy Belladonna for the Indians uh, concert or video shoot or what was it for? There's two things on Anthrax and Overkill I'll give you real quick. First of all, when I was doing radio early on, I was still living at home in my, my parents' house. And people figured out where I lived. And Rat Skates, the original drummer in Overkill, <laughs> used to drive to my parents' house, put their demo tape in the mailbox in the middle of the night, and beep the horn three times and drive away. <laughs> and, and it would wake you up because we'd sleep with the windows open or whatever. And my mother was like, who are these people doing this? <laughs> he was trying to get airplay. It was his way of doing like marketing. <laughs> right. But yeah, the story with uh, Indians, that came more from working for Megaforce. But, you know, they had made Among the Living. They were shooting a music video for it at the time. I had photos of all of this, me on the set with them, everything. Johnny says to me one day in the office, he's like, it will be really cool if during the song, Joey comes out with a headdress on. And he goes, where can we get a headdress? And I just remembered, and I believe this store is still there to this day. Flanders, New Jersey. <laughs> there's a store called Cherokee Trading Post. And I would go buy it all the time. And I went in there a couple of times just looking at what they had. And they had this big headdress across the wall. So I said to Johnny, I go, I think I know where there's somebody selling a headdress that could work. Again, he gives me the credit card and he goes, if they got it, go get it. So I drive there and I walk in and there it was on the wall. And I said to the guy, I was like, I want to buy that headdress. He's like, he looks, he goes, how big is your car? Because you can't mash it together. It'll damage it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, there it is out there. He goes, it's going to be a tight fit. I buy the headdress. I put it across the whole back seat, drive it into the office the next day. And that's the headdress that you see to, in the Indians video, immortalized. And it held it, it hung in there a long time before it kind of fell apart. And then they ended up having to buy another one somewhere. But it was uh, definitely got its use. They took it on the road with them and all that. All right, so I'm like 10 and 0 when it comes to snagging the last delicious factor meal in my house before the new weekly delivery arrives. We all love factors ready to eat meals here in the Jericho household. They're fresh, never frozen, chef crafted and dietitian approved. And best of all, they're ready to eat in just two minutes. Eating better has never been easier or more delicious. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus and keto. So before I jumped on the plane to get the dynamite this week to wrestle Atlantis Jr., I had grilled steakhouse filet mignon with Parmesan cream, spinach and broccolini. Two minutes to heat it up. 
ate it right out of the factory container and then tossed it in the garbage. Fast, easy, and delicious. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. You can fuel up with Factor's restaurant-quality meals, too. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. You can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime, and Factor is less expensive than takeout. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash TIJ50 and use code TIJ50 to get 50% off. That's code TIJ50 at factormeals.com slash TIJ50 to get 50% off. So many great moments um, that I can remember from your show. I remember one of the first times I was listening, I was in New York probably after a garden show because we used to work there on Saturdays, and I was listening to you talk with Zach Wild, and this was when Zach was in his drinking days, and he was just off his rocker as he was. He still is, but you know now he's a little bit more controllable. At the point you were like, "Okay, Zach's oh, oh," and Zach's getting up. Oh, and Zach's peeing in the garbage can in the corner. <laughs> it was it was mad. Like when I think about what went on back then, that station NEW. To give the quick backstory, it it was a an iconic New York City radio station. Mm-hmm. Like all these guys came out of it, Scott Muni and all that. It was a legendary signal. But at that time, they were floundering and they couldn't figure out what to do with it. And they were this hybrid of FM talk and some music and all this stuff. But it was a great time for me because I had total autonomy and the lunatics were really running the asylum. (laughs) This was before 9-11. We used to have just people randomly come in off the street and artists and whoever were there. We had... One time I found this girl sleeping under the stairwell, like she had walked in from the sidewalk, like <laughs> just crazy, crazy stuff. But yeah, back in those days, it there was madness that went on and it was open-ended as to when I could end. Zach was a different guy, as you know, when he was hitting it hard drinking yeah. and there were and great and fun, but out of his mind. And yes, he would piss and shit and throw <laughs> up and fall and... I mean, there were times I'd look across the console at him and I'd be talking to him and I'd turn and I'd look back and he wasn't there anymore because he just went right over and fell. He was on the ground. <laughs> there were amazing things that we got away with that were just way too much fun back then and uh, a lot of great memories. But I do vividly remember meeting you around that time because you called in. As you know, I, I've not nothing but respect for what you do, but I was never super into pro wrestling. Right, right, right. I, I was when I was much younger, Bruno San Martino, Ivan Putski, that was my whole era, but I just didn't follow it anymore. So I knew who you were, but I knew you because Fozzie, that first Fozzie record too, where you were under this assumed name and all of that. Right, 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 right. And there was this whole backstory about like how you really wrote Dio, Rainbow in the Dark or something. <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm doing like a super nerd metal show and i'm like i can't sell this concept here right right, wrestler wrote this song and it was hijacked and all and then i'll never forget because i do remember the very first time you called because i used to take a lot of calls too and you were like i have it on tape somewhere because you were like i just waited 30 minutes to talk to the legendary eddie trunk and i have the recording and i go oh yeah (laughs) hey man i know who you are and like you know whatever and i was like And that's when I said, yeah, why don't you come up sometime and hang out? And then, you know, you started becoming part of that crew hanging out when you were in town. Well, there's a great story, too. And I'm sure you've discussed it many times, but we've never discussed it. I don't think on the air when when we were in the studio, when they were promoting 
Scott Ian and Sebastian, the, the super group show. And out of nowhere, Axel calls in and 30 minutes later, here comes Axel Rose into your studio. And this is Axel Rose in 2006. Maybe he was not, not that he does a lot of interviews now, but he was not even in the public eye the way that he is now. It was completely out of nowhere. What a crazy night that was. Yeah, that, that was, um, certainly an enormous moment. And, um, you were there, Scott was there, Sebastian Bach was there and Don Jameson was there well before that metal show. We were just friends. Yeah. And I remember he was hanging out. Yes. They were pr promoting Supergroup, which was that show with Jason Bonham, Evan Seinfeld, Ted Nugent. It was really Sebastian that made that whole thing happen because he was in that show Supergroup, and he, I think Skid Row had toured with Guns N' Roses back in the day. Yes, yeah. And nobody had heard from Axel in like 30 years, and we were at the VH1 <laughs> office, because I was working as a host at VH1 Classic, and I was doing something called the Supergroup Post Show. That show aired on VH1. They would do a wrap-up show on VH1 Classic, and that's what I hosted. So I had recorded a bunch of those episodes with those guys. We just got done shooting. Then they said, hey, can we promote it on your radio show? I said, yeah. So we were in the office at VH1 the day before, and I remember Sebastian saying to me, dude, you're not going to believe this. I just got a text from Axl Rose. I'm like, <laughs> he's like, he's texting me. Like, it was like hearing from a unicorn, you know? I was like, what? Right, 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 right. And uh, he goes, I, I told him to come to your radio show tomorrow night. And I'm like, yeah, like that's going to happen. And then that show that you're talking about, we did it and he started texting Sebastian again. You were there. I was like, Sebastian, tell him where we're at. And then like an hour later, security tells us he's coming up. It was just absolutely crazy. And that was also just before station started streaming. And I don't really remember if there was like social media going on yet then. I don't really think there were many, there was any sort of real social media platforms, but I do know even in the absence of all that, you could feel what was happening with us on the air that night yeah. was literally spreading around the, the world. Yeah, I remember the, the whoever your station manager was or whoever it was was saying, keep him on as long as you can. There's no deadline. Like if your show's supposed to end at two and he wants to talk till three or whatever, just keep him going. Yeah, and we did. We did stay on at yeah. least till 3.30. I don't remember how long you were there, but I did you go to the club with us? Yeah, the bungalow. Yes, because they remember the funniest thing about that is we finish up. I cut the radio show at like three thirty four in the morning. And of course, Axel's like, Hey man, I'm going out. You guys want to come? And we're like <laughs> four o'clock. And he went to that trendy club in the meatpacking district. And I remember when he told us, I was like, that's the kind of place Lindsay Lohan hangs out at. And as we're waiting to get in, she was standing behind us. And we got to go, we got to go ahead of her in line. Because <laughs> we have the password. That's right. I do remember uh, sitting next to Axel in that place. And he said, like, uh, like, dude, I had such a great time tonight. It was so much fun. I'm really glad that I came. It was fun just to talk music with a bunch of guys. Like, we were literally were just talking. I just remember talking about Wasp and Great White and David Lee Roth. And there was no, like, Axel Rose. He just became, like, the rest of us. Because I remember one of the questions we asked right away was, all right, Axel, great to have you here. Here's your first question. Judas Priest or Iron Maiden? And once we gave him that, the ice broke, and then we're just a bunch of nerds talking about heavy metal. What was his answer to that? Do you remember? He liked Priest better, but I think he said Killers was his favorite album out of all of them, something along those lines. Like Maiden won the actual album, but Priest overall was his favorite. 
The other, the other thing I remember talking to him about that night was that he kept bringing up Nazareth to me, right? The band Nazareth, right? Because he said what a fan he was of Dan McCaffrey's voice. Dan McCaffrey passed away recently. Yeah. But if you, if anybody ever listens to Nazareth and you listen to Axel, you will hear a lot of that influence on Axel's voice. He's the one guy. There's a little Bon Scott in there too, but he's the one guy that you can really hear influenced Axel more than anybody's Dan McCaffrey for sure. And when Dan passed away, you saw Axel post a lot about it. Yes, yes, yes. It was, he was an important guy to him. You know who's living large at my house? My three cats, Mr. Mittens, Indy, and Snickers. And you know why? Because we switched them to Pretty Litter. Okay, so it's really me and my wife and my daughters who are living large, thanks to Pretty Litter. Because Pretty Litter's ultra-absorbent crystals trap odor instantly, so no more bad cat smells in the bathroom. Pretty Litter crystals last up to a month, so less cat litter box cleaning for all of us, and less fighting about whose turn it is to clean the litter box. I gotta deal with this fight every single week between my daughters. This makes it so much easier. Pretty Litter also ships right to our front door, so no more last-minute mad scramble runs to the store because we're out of kitty litter. And Pretty Litter has another cool feature that makes life just a little easier. It helps us keep tabs on our cat's health. It changes colors so you can monitor early signs of potential illnesses like urinary tract infections and kidney issues. It's easily the best thing we've done for ourselves and our cats in a very long time. Like I said, Pretty Litter helps keep tabs on my cat's health and keeps odors down. Those are two big wins in my house meow. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. So go to prettylitter.com slash Jericho and use code Jericho to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash Jericho. Code Jericho to save 20%. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So one of the things I was going to ask you too is like obviously having so much influence over the years and not everybody's always happy. And there has been some people that, that haven't been happy with you talking about Kiss. And I think even Ozzy or Sharon might have had an issue with you for a while. How does that make you feel? Because you've always been super honest on the radio. You say what you feel. You're very... Um, Switzerland, you you, say, you you don't bury anybody, but sometimes people get angry at things that you say. Does that bother you as a fan or as a professional? What bothers me most is when stuff I do or say gets completely taken out of context. Mm-hmm. You know better than anybody, especially in the world we're in now, that there's this crazy desire for clickbait and there's this crazy desire to conflate, inflate, whatever the word may be, things that's really difficult. That's super challenging. If I said it and it's what I believe and it is in context and somebody doesn't agree with it, that's fine. I'll take the heat. But so much of what I do and say is completely creatively edited. Almost a lot of what I do, people record and then put online. I actually heard something recently where it was an interview I did with somebody and they cut me out asking the questions and cut themselves in to make it look like that person was on their program. Oh, wow. That's bad. So there's so much creative like editing and stuff. And of course, if I say something 99% positive about an artist, but 1% negative, that 1% is the thing that everyone's going to gravitate towards. Right, 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 right. So that's where I have a problem. And it has led to some issues you know, what I like is if people be adults, let's talk about it. Don't blacklist me. Don't run from me. If I say that's how I feel, let's have a dialogue about it. I mean, I respect all opinions. I've never thought I'm the beginning and the end. I never thought I'm the law. I never thought 
that my opinion's the only one that should count. But I love the back and forth. I love the debate. I love the dialogue. There's some people just like they reach a conclusion and it's like, well, that guy's out. Can't talk to him anymore. He's the enemy. Right. Regardless of the fact that 99% of what I've done have been positive and supportive. One thing, you're off the train. You're no good anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's where I have a problem. And that's where it's pretty unfortunate. And there's been times I've been able to, over time, some of those bridges have been mended. Not everybody has to like me. It's fine. But I just, I have a problem with it when it's completely taken out of context, erroneous, and not at all what I really said. You know, for instance, a band you and I love, Kiss. I've said a million times, I think Tommy and Eric are great people, fantastic musicians. I don't begrudge them at all for taking the gig and doing what they do. For me, as a Kiss fan, I'm not down with it. It's not an indictment on them. If you're down with it, go. Have a great time. I don't judge you for it. For me, not for me. But I never had anything at all personal against those guys. I like them both very much. I knew them long before they did the gig. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly it's like, Eddie Trunk is the Kiss hater. Eddie Trunk talks shit about Tommy and Eric. No, I love those guys. It just wasn't for me, the Ozzy thing is, you know, I don't even know Ozzy, <laughs> but Sharon, you know, whatever information she got, she doesn't like the fact that I have people like Daisley on or that I was outspoken about Curse Lake not having a gold record or that Robert Mason came on my show and talked about singing from behind the stage for Ozzy. It's a kind of shoot the messenger thing, you know? Right, right, right. I catch a lot of that as well, where things that people say on my show because it happened on my show, get attributed to me. Comes with the territory. Who have been some of your favorite guests that you've ever had on? Dio was always... Such a smart guy, right? What a great guy to talk to. Always awesome. Uh, Halford, you know, unfortunately, because some of the things we just talked about, Rob actually does not come on my show anymore. Really? Which is, yeah. Very, very, very unfortunate. But That's a drag. Yeah, and I love Rob to this day, and the door is open, and there's been some progress. I just did something with Ian and Richie, and I love the new music I'm hearing. But again, it goes back to kind of like what you talked about before, where people kind of get the wrong impression on something. When Glenn was announced that he was not going to be a part of Priest or, or had his illness, look, right now, for people that don't know, for the last seven, eight years, I do a daily rock talk show on Sirius XM. It's live every day, three to five Eastern on Faction Talk, channel 103. There's my plug. <laughs> I call it sports talk for rock fans because every day I'm going on with the news of the day and taking calls and reaction to it. And on that particular day, it was announced that uh, Glenn was ill and that they were going to continue with it, find a new guitar player. Priest had already toyed with the idea and announced a farewell tour a couple years earlier. Needless to say, the majority of the calls that were coming in that day was speculating whether KK would come back. Right. And then I speculated, well, maybe they end and hang it up because they talked about doing it a year ago. And now a founding member is sick. But somehow that got misconstrued into me saying priest is no good. Priest, right. you know, again, shoot up in the Internet, spit out into whatever it was. But my point in saying that is I miss Rob. I love Rob. And he was always great on the air. We had amazing times. One time I had Richie Faulkner push him in a wheelchair into my studio <laughs> through Times Square, like crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hopefully that'll happen again. I always loved Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony as people. 
the most fun, real people you could ever meet. That's why it's such an honor. They're, they're headlining a, a party to celebrate my 40 years. Every time Ace comes on, to this day, Ace was on with me a couple days ago. <laughs> where he didn't know one of the people that's on his record who it was. Yeah. And he made the classic quote, Kiss fans aren't the sharpest knives in the drawer, but my fans are. Also that he said that him, him and Gene were going to open a real estate uh, company and sell Swampland in New Jersey. <laughs> you bought that one. I did. I did. Or, or whether the last time he was on where he was going to drop all this dirt on Paul and I talked him out of it. It's like every time Ace is on, whether you're a Kiss fan or not, people get a kick out of it because it's so crazy. So those are just some guys that come to mind immediately. Is there anybody over the years that you never had a chance to interview? I, I can't imagine there was anybody. I'm sure there must be somebody. Well, Freddie Mercury, sadly, had passed. But I was in radio at the time. He was still with us. So that would have been amazing. Eddie Van Halen, I only got once. And it was on the phone. I did meet him a couple times. But interview-wise, it was only once. And it was a phoner. And it was for Van Halen 3. Phoners are always harder than being in person too, right? Yeah, I would have loved to have done way more with Eddie over the years. Ozzy only once before I was blacklisted from Ozzy, <laughs> but that's because he was doing a show at the Meadowlands and it was really stiff and they needed, they, they were desperate to sell tickets. So <laughs> they even came on my show. I remember how that happened because they weren't letting him come on my show and the promoter called and said, can you give away 50 Ozzy tickets? I'm like, not unless he calls in. So I was like, I get that. I strong arm that one to happen. But the one guy that comes to mind immediately, amazingly, I never interviewed David Lee Roth. Wow. Never even met him. Wow. But the one guy that really jumps out still to this day, and it's still possible but doubtful, would be Jimmy Page. I did interview Robert Plant twice for TV in England, but I never interviewed Jimmy. Met him, but never interviewed him. And the closest we got was the last season of that metal show Rhino had started doing those reissues of the Zeppelin catalog, and we thought we were going to get him to promote that, and he refused to do it because the show had metal in the title. Oh, wow. That metal show. Wow. And they want nothing. He wants no association with metal. I remember him saying through his camp, saying something like, what am I going to go on there and be sitting next to Lemmy or something? <laughs> Which would have been awesome, by the way. Right, right. <laughs> and Chris, we offered... We even offered for that night to make it a special and change it and call it that Zeppelin show or that Jimmy Page show. We put an edit together of all the non-metal people like Ann and Nancy from Heart and Paul Rogers that had come on the show, sent them that. No dice. Yeah, Still yeah. wasn't having it. Never happened. Last two things for you, Eddie. I know there's so much we could discuss, but what do you see the future of radio being? Obviously, I know you've had your serious show for a while. We talk about streaming. Uh, what's kind of the, the wave of the future, do you think? I think the wave of the future, it's got to be content-driven. Hmm. What I mean by that is, again, sure, there's still something cool about hearing your song or getting your song played on the radio. I'm not diminishing that at all. But the reality is that we all know that anybody with any song in two seconds can pull it up on here and hear it. Right. Meaning your phone for people that don't see the video. So. I think that's the biggest, biggest change is the availability of music. So I'm doing eight shows a week I currently put out. One is a podcast, which is just a repurpose of my one of my serious interviews. One is a syndicated FM all music radio show. And then there's a music show on Hair Nation on Mondays on Sirius XM that's live and half talk. And then my main gig right now is Monday through Friday, a rock talk show. 
I'm not even kidding. At 40 years, that show doing it live every day is probably my favorite thing I've ever done in my career, certainly radio wise, hmm. because every day I'm live and reacting to what's going on. Journey and Leopard just announced shows again. This guy died. This guy just had this happen. And having a big community of people that are there to call in and talk about it and share opinions. I love that. And I think that whether it's a podcast, like what you're doing, whether it's that kind of a radio show, obviously it's about doing something more than just playing music. We're recording this on a Friday. Friday is the release day that a lot of new music comes out. What I do on that show, we'll pick five songs because I may have three or four commercial breaks. And I'll tell people, hey, here's the new song from Fozzie from Boombox that I'm going to play for you right now. It's called Whatever. But I'm only going to play like 45, 50 seconds of it going into the commercial break. Give the people a taste of it. Tell them what it is. Because if they like it, they can write, go right to their favorite and hear it or save it. They don't need me to play them the full song. Right. Now, I still do that. But I do a talk show, so it gives people I, – I find that it's more important now that people need guidance, they need direction, they need curation, because I say this all the time. We live in a time when anyone can make music. That's a good and a bad thing. It's good that if you want to be creative, you can put it out. It's bad in that it's completely flooded the marketplace making it very, very hard for people to find stuff and find out what's real, what's good, what's not good. So I think people need more than somebody just playing five songs in a row for them. They need direction on what is out there. I mean, you'd be amazed. I, I get calls all the time. People be like, hey, whatever happened to, I don't know, whatever band? And I'm like, Nothing. They make a record a year. What are you talking about? Right. It's so easy to get absorbed and lost in the shuffle. And I think that that, to me, there will always be a place to hear music on the radio. But I think it's about intriguing conversations, content, dialogue, exchanges, things like that more than anything. And that's why I think you've seen, you can look at a podcast as the same thing. There are podcasts that have five people that listen to them. And there's podcasts like yours and Joe Rogan's and Adam Carolla's and others that actually have audience and move the needle. It's like anything. It's like, are you bringing good content and are you building an audience? That's what it comes down to, no matter what kind of format you're doing in radio. It's just very challenging right now because there's just a lot of people doing it. The pool is way, way bigger. Trying to stand out from that is difficult. Well said, Ed. Last two questions for you, man. Who's your favorite band ever? Is there one that still stands out for you? Just one? Uh, well, you can pick a few. Well, look, as everybody knows, I and I will I never back down from this. There was no band more important to me than Kiss. Mm. I will never deny that. And they will always be extraordinarily special to me. I tend to say 2001 back is my Kiss. Through the whole 80s, all of that. Last 20 years wasn't my thing. Mm -hmm. But you can I can say that about any band that I love, that there's a chunk of time that I kind of checked out. But Kiss was the first rock music I ever heard was a band called The Raspberries and a song called Go All The Way. Yeah. But then I got Kiss Destroyer and my life changed at like 12 years old. And there's probably no band I'm more identified with for a variety of reasons than <laughs> Kiss because I waved the flag so hard for them when nobody else did, really. 
So I was in my town, in my high school, I was just kiss, kiss, kiss. But beyond that, certainly Aerosmith, Van Halen, Sabbath. I was a huge Billy Squire fan. People, I don't talk about that enough, but I loved Billy and still do. Kiss and Aerosmith are kind of like 1-1-A out of the gate. And of course, your Halloween, my UFO. <laughs> UFO is my Halloween. Right. Your <laughs> Last Halloween for, is my UFO. That's right. Last question for you, Ed. Is there, is there a, a story or a moment that sticks out for you from that metal show that you laugh at every time? You had so many great guests and so many great moments. Is the one that pops in your head when I mention that to you? Waiting till all hours of the morning to get Axl Rose again back to Axel when we finally got him in Miami. That's a whole story. Yeah, you guys had to wait till like four in the morning for him to finally show up after the gig, right? Yeah, there's so many stories surrounding that, whether <laughs> he knew about it, whether he didn't. We were half asleep. It just, But the fact that we got him in any capacity, but it's one I'd love to have back because I was like zombied out. It was so late. <laughs> you know, for me, even referencing the bands that were important to me, I'm 59, so I was always... The 70s guys were the guys that I had the posters on the wall. The 80s guys I grew up with. Right, right, You know, right. the Motleys of the world. I had Too Fast for Love when it was on an independent label. I mean, I love yeah. all these guys. but You were in the business at that point. I yeah. was in the business. We came up together. It's I look at it differently. 70s guys were the, like, that's when I was, like, not in the business and everything was larger than life. So, for me, with that show, whenever I would look to my right and Tony Iommi was sitting there or... <laughs> or geezer for that matter or brian johnson sitting there or steve harris is sitting there you getty lee and mm. alex lifeson were sitting there that's the stuff like you gotta be kidding me i always laugh because steven adler jumped out of a cake once on that metal show <laughs> for my birthday and i don't know why but adler was such a huge fan of the show it was just funny i've got photos of it and i i used to laugh and i'm like well, yeah, of course, for me, jumping out of my birthday cake, it's not Marilyn Monroe singing to me, <laughs> or it's not Megan Fox coming out of the cake in a bikini. It's Steven Adler with CDs in his hand. Hey, my rock brother. But if you know Steven, he's such a lovable guy that when you say what I laugh at, I laugh at thinking of things like that. Ace Frehley with the smoking flute. Smoking flute was like one of the greatest <laughs> things. And of course, this is where I get in trouble because I said something like, is that the next thing Kiss is going to take? And that's what Tommy did. <laughs> but how can you resist? I remember this one too. When you're talking about the TV show, chicken footage just started. And this was on camera. This aired. And we were at Irving Plaza in New York. For anybody that's ever been there, it's a two-floor club. There's a balcony level with a railing. Yeah. And that's where they were playing that night. And we shot during the day. Chad Smith, Satriani, Michael, Sammy, all lined up. That was just at the time that Van Halen announced that Wolfgang was going to replace Michael Anthony. So I've got all the guys lined up. We're doing the interview, and I go up. I can't believe I had the balls to do this. But I, but again, knowing Sammy and Michael and what great people they are in the sense of humor, I figured I, I could get away with it with them, if anyone. Right. And I said to Satriani, I go, hey, Joe, you got any kids? And Joe goes, yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. And I go, do they play guitar? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you know, they're starting to play some instruments and stuff. I said, so how long before they replace Michael Anthony? <laughs> <laughs> 
And I love Michael to death. He's one of my favorite people in the world, but I know he's got a sense of humor. So I took the chance that I could do it. And Michael being the great guy that he is did like, you know, I'm out of here, you know, like in that. And I'll never forget this, Chris, you've probably played Irving Plaza or certainly been yeah, there. We have. Yeah. 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 But that upper level, that's a big drop to the floor. Right. Swear to God, Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers looks at me, goes, that's outrageous. I'm out of here and jumped over the railing to the floor. He jumped. I remember that. That was real. And I'm like, he's your drummer. If he breaks his ankle or something, there's no show tonight. <laughs> and Sammy was just shaking his head. He goes, Crazy, yeah, yeah. crazy. We looked down and there's Chad. He's like, I'm out of here, Trump. <laughs> well, dude, it's been great talking to you. And once again, congratulations on 40 years. And you are one of the most respected guys on the radio uh, and on TV talking about rock and roll and heavy metal, flying the flag. And it's always a blast to talk with you in any capacity. So congratulations, man. Much deserved. Chris, I appreciate it. And I, I thank you for your, your friendship. I mean, it's been about 25 years since you made that call. <laughs> You know, we've had some great moments and times as well. I remember, I think, whatever it was, I turned 30 or 40 or whatever. And, 2004, right? I think it was. Yeah, but whether it's the Axel stuff, all the stuff that uh, we, we've we uh, had fun to do. And look, man, I've said it before, and I, I'll say it publicly here again. I got nothing but respect for what you built with your career, especially with Fozzie, because I know what you were up against getting that thing going. And to have that hum in the way you do, man, nothing but respect. So congrats. Thank you, man. Much appreciated, and congratulations. And we'll uh, we'll rock together again soon. We gotta get the uh, what are we called? The idiots of rock or whatever you metal mean. summit, metal summit. Yeah, <laughs> metal summit. We're overdue. Me, you, Portnoy. We gotta get that crew together. That's it, man. Dude, it's great talking to you, man. Thanks, Chris.